from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on John Reginald Christie. John was born on April 8, 1899, making him an Aries in Yorkshire, England. And as we always do, let's see what was going on in the world at that time. Not long before John's birth, the world saw the creation of the first telephone, as well as the first functioning light bulb. This time in the world, we saw an incomprehensible acceleration of scientific discovery and invention. Mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, all were being discovered and studied and better understood at such a rapid pace. It was paving the way for the industrial revolution and the technologies that formed the beginnings of what we have and enjoy today. The population was also growing rapidly, and with that, a need for more advanced medicines. This led to more study and understanding of the human anatomy, and disease prevention became the focus. Before this era, people didn't understand things like bacteria and germs. Due to this, Europe's population in the 19th century doubled. It went from 200 million to over 400 million. Aspirin was invented and patented in 1889. And just before that, a successful vaccine against rabies was created after a young boy had been bitten 14 times by a dog with rabies. Railroads made traveling faster and further possible. London became the world's largest city and was the capital of the British Empire. The last remaining undiscovered land masses on our planet were finally explored during this time. The only places we had left to conquer were the Arctic and the Antarctic. This led to much, much more accurate and detailed maps by the 1890s. Also during this time, we saw the rapid creation of different sports, especially in Britain and the United States. Football, rugby, cricket, and baseball were developed during this era. In 1889, the Moulin Rouge opened in Paris. The Jungle Book was published in 1894, and I know my guys will love this. Bram Stoker wrote his infamous novel Dracula in 1897. Three years later, the book The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was published. 
But not everything was rainbows and unicorns. While the world was advancing so rapidly with regards to technology and medicine, women were still expected to not wear clothes that showed any more skin than necessary. In fact, being able to see a woman's ankles during that time was quite scandalous. In 1866, the American Equal Rights Association was founded and its intent was to make sure all Americans had their basic civil rights, regardless of race, color, or gender. After, women began running for politics. The first ever female lawyer was Belva Lockwood in 1879. In 1882, the British invaded Egypt and the subsequent occupation of Egypt began. We had the Cuban War for Independence from Spain. Many nations were fighting for their own independence while others decided to join together. I mean, the world was changing and advancing at a mind-blowing pace. John's parents were Ernest Christie and Mary Halliday. Ernest's father was born in 1862 in Kidderminster, Worcestershire. There doesn't seem to be much of anything about Ernest's life before his marriage and children, but we do know that he worked as a carpet designer. Mary Halliday was also born in 1862 in Halifax, West Yorkshire. The couple married in 1881, both just 19 years old. Ernest and Mary settled into a house that still stands today. It's called Black Boy House. It is on Turner Lane in the Claremont area of Halifax. If one lived over there and were so inclined to have a look, the house itself is only a couple of miles from the center of town. Before it was a house, the structure was the Black Boy Inn, but it went out of business. Ernest was described as disciplined, a hard worker, but was very strict with his children and had a short temper. He believed children should be seen and not heard. He wanted silence in his house so that he could read. Suffice to say, he was not a loving and attentive father. Ernest also studied basic medicine and was able to help people with first aid. His co-workers actually called him Dr. Christie because he was quite knowledgeable considering he was self-taught. And there really isn't much information about Mary's life at all. We have to assume that she was a housewife as most were during that time. Considering the number of children they had, she'd nearly have to be. Their first child was a boy. The next four were girls. Then John followed by a baby sister. His oldest sibling was 16 years old when John was born, and there were a total of seven children. So Mary was described as a loving and doting mother, especially to John. They shared a very close bond, and due to this, John grew up extremely protective of his mother. Ernest, his father, worked for Crossley and Sons as a carpet designer, and it is said that, compared to others who worked in this industry, he would have made pretty decent money. The family would have been considered middle class, but at the same time not exactly comfortable. 
The family moved house a few times and all of the children attended school and also went to Sunday school at All Souls Church. And for the most part, other than their very strict father, the children were happy. Outside of the home, John's peers later stated that he was a, quote, queer lad, introverted and withdrawn from his classmates. He was described as not very popular. Then, on March 24, 1911, when John was 10 years old, his maternal grandfather, David Halliday, died. He was 75 years old and had been sick for quite some time. The body had been put on display in the Christie home, and when John saw it, it had a profound effect on him. For whatever reason, it made him feel powerful and gave him a sense of well-being. John later said, quote, All my life, I have never experienced fear or horror at the sight of a corpse. On the contrary, I have seen many, and they hold an interest and fascination over me. Unquote. John was also going with other children to cemeteries and looking into the children's vault at their little coffins. Also at this age, it is said that he thought he was becoming sexually attracted to his own sisters, but for the most part, outwardly at least, he was a well-behaved child. He was intelligent and even won a scholarship to the Halifax Secondary School. While there, he was actually a bit of a math whiz, including algebra. His IQ was tested and he scored 128, which is very well above average. He joined the school football team, but was an average player at best. John was still every bit the loner. He enjoyed singing in the church choir and was a member of the Boy Scouts. At just 13 years old, John Christie left school and got a job in a movie theater as assistant cinema operator, and he rather enjoyed the solitary work. And though he was known to be a bit of a hypochondriac, always thinking there was something wrong with him, life was steady and certainly not unpleasant. But as he began to go through puberty, he began to realize that something was a little off. At 15 or 16 years old, he was, like any other teenager his age, beginning to get interested in relationships and was attracted to other girls. John made an effort to go to the areas where kids his age were hanging out in an attempt to attract young ladies, but none were interested. But after continuing to try, John finally met and went out with a girl, but she later said that he was, quote, slow and didn't know what to do and she ditched him for another young man that John had had you know somewhat of a friendship with you see it wasn't that he didn't want to be intimate with a girl the mind was willing but the body was weak so to speak his body was not reacting like normal boys his age did somehow the word got around and the other teens began to call him can't do it Christy and pardon Reggie no dick at 17 years old John decided to join the military to fight in World War One but before he joined he and a couple of friends visited some prostitutes in Halifax 
and he was finally able to perform. He then joined and was sent to France when he was 18 years old. So let's look at his childhood. John was born the second to the last in a big family with an emotionally distant father who really didn't seem to want to be bothered by his children and if he did interact with them, he was harsh. Beating young children was not necessarily out of the norm for those times though. Emotional and physical abuse can result in anxiety and depression. We all know this. A child who is ignored or physically and mentally abused will have issues with self-esteem. It damages their emotional and psychological well-being, leading to possible disordered behavior in the future. Again, none of this is a surprise. Unhealthy relationships with parents lead to unhealthy relationships with others. His father's stern discipline and lack of attention could very well have affected how he related to his peers. We already know the other kids thought he was weird and quiet. He purposefully isolated himself. Also, according to Dr. Mendez, quote, persistent exposure to belittling, berating, name-calling, and verbal punishment breaks down a child's sense of competence and forms a foundation of self-doubt, self-hatred, and worthlessness, unquote. Since he could get positive attention from his mother, playing up his illnesses must have been a very effective way to achieve this, thus continuing this behavior into adulthood. And while we know John was particularly close with his mother and, before he was even 10 years old, he said that he felt like he was sexually attracted to his sisters. Now, while we have no conclusive proof of this, there is an interesting article on ATSA.com that children who become sexually aware much younger than usual could be an indicator for sexual abuse the child has suffered. This could also happen if the child is exposed to violence in the home, which does line up with his childhood. We also know that John suffered from some form of erectile dysfunction as a teenager. And as we all know, to achieve an erection, there are a combination of things that work together. The brain, nerves, hormones, muscles, and the circulatory system. It becomes a dysfunction when they are unable to get an erection or are unable to sustain it. It is not uncommon, as we hear on TV and in movies constantly. It is more prevalent in older men. So, what are the causes? If one were to go to the doctor, they would do a physical exam as well as test the blood for any abnormalities, as well as testosterone levels. Some possible physical issues that would cause this dysfunction are heart problems, blocked arteries, and so on. High blood pressure can be a culprit. Being a diabetic is certainly a common issue because when the man's blood sugar is too high, the blood is thicker and cannot get through those teeny tiny blood vessels or the blood vessels are damaged because of the level of glucose in the blood. Obesity is an obvious issue or there could be a hormone issue such as low testosterone or even perhaps a thyroid problem. All of these should not have been a problem for a young teenage boy who was in perfect good physical health. 
We, of course, have no way of knowing if he had low testosterone levels, but as you will see when we get into his story, I highly doubt that that was the culprit. So that leaves us with psychological causes of erectile dysfunction. Depression and anxiety can play a role in this issue. High levels of stress can also be a cause and teen boys that experience this dysfunction could experience psychological harm that will continue to interfere with how they relate to sex as adults. It is likely that John sought comfort and intimacy with his mother and sisters because he certainly wasn't going to get that from his father. He and his mother seemed to be closer than the rest of the children, but he also knew that, as most everyone does, it is not okay to have sexual feelings toward family members. What is most unfortunate is that his peers found out about his private issue with erectile dysfunction and began to tease him about it. I think that we can all agree that would be a major blow to his self-esteem as a very young man. And who leaked this information out? A local girl who knew all of his friends who he tried to have sex with. I'm sure his anger and humiliation at her were extremely high. But he was able to perform with a prostitute. To him, prostitutes were, one, not wholesome girls, and they played a particular role for him. They were not scared to do dirty things. They allowed him to take complete and utter control over them. Two, there were no implied relationship, and three, the idea of it being taboo also excited him. This leads us to the conclusion that his, that his dysfunction was entirely psychological. So, in 1917, John was in the army and served as an infantryman and then signalman. While stationed in France, they were attacked by the German forces with gas. He was exposed to the mustard gas and was forced to spend a month in the hospital. He later swore that the attack had left him blind and mute for three years. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's take just a moment to talk about what happens when someone is exposed to mustard gas. It's a chemical agent that, if exposed, will cause extreme burning of the eyes, skin, and respiratory system. The effects will be felt as it is inhaled, ingested, or comes into contact with the skin. The gas is, for the most part, colorless or can have a faint yellow or green tint. It is said that it does somewhat smell like mustard, though others have described it as smelling like garlic or horseradish or sulfur. Once the skin has been exposed, it will cause the skin to become red, it itches intensely, and blisters will begin to form. 
If inhaled, it will strip the mucous membranes of the nose, throat, and lungs, as well as the eyes. The victim will experience temporary blindness, runny nose, a cough, shortness of breath, and sinus pain. If it's ingested, the person will also experience abdominal cramping, severe diarrhea, vomiting, and usually a fever. What is unusual about mustard gas is that most gaseous weapons begin to take effect immediately, whereas mustard gas can take from 12 to 24 hours for the symptoms to begin to appear after exposure. In most all cases, exposure is not lethal. And also, most of the time, the victims will make a complete recovery within a few weeks. In very rare cases, victims can have permanent scarring or even be disfigured from the chemical burns. Some become permanently blind. A few others suffer from respiratory issues the rest of their lives. And to top it off, anyone that was exposed to mustard gas might have damage to their very own DNA in their cells, which can cause an increased risk of different cancers. So needless to say, it's no joke. I mean, it sounds most unpleasant to say the least. So John said he was blind and mute for three years. Experts all agree that he was greatly exaggerating his symptoms lasting for that long. While his voice might have been a bit softer once he recovered, the effects would not have lasted three years and then suddenly disappear. It is believed this was part of his constant playing up illnesses to get sympathy from others. After only serving for two years, John left the army in 1919 and was given money for disability for six months. It was eight shillings a week not near enough to live on even for that time. He moved back into his parents' house and got another job at a movie theater, then quickly went on to work as a clerk in a woolen mill. He wasn't home from the army long when a young lady by the name of Ethel Simpson caught his eye. She lived very close to his parents' house. Now don't let pictures of her from when she was older deceive you. Ethel was described as beautiful, very bright, dressed nicely, and worked as a clerk herself. She and John might actually have met working in the same place. They began dating and they married pretty quickly in May of 1920 at the Halifax Registry Office. And though he tried to overcome it, John still struggled with impotency. This made his self-doubt and self-loathing even worse. So, how he was able to impregnate Ethel leaves much to the imagination, but she did get pregnant. Unfortunately, she suffered a miscarriage. And John never stopped visiting prostitutes. It was the only way that he could have any semblance of a satisfying sex life. Trying to settle into married life, John got a job as a postman, but it didn't take long for him to get busted for stealing people's packages and mail that had checks or money in it, and he was arrested. He only served three months in prison because he had a good, clean record. He had served his country, was a victim of mustard gas, and had been a Sunday school teacher, and so on. 
Two years later, he was arrested again for non-payment of rent, though his mother paid what he owed. He was put on a year probation. And now that his family had found out, he was the black sheep. To escape this family disappointment, John left Halifax and his wife behind. John maintained that Ethel had been having an affair, which could have been true, but he was still sleeping with prostitutes, so... John landed in Manchester and worked as a house painter, but came back to Halifax and broke into his parents' house and stole some jewelry. He was arrested in 1924 for larceny and was sentenced to six months in prison. He then moved to London. In May 1929, at 30 years old, John, who was working as a truck driver, was arrested and convicted for violently attacking a prostitute with a cricket bat. He was sentenced to six months of hard labor. Then in 1933, when John was 34 years old, he was arrested again for stealing a priest's car, a priest who had befriended him, and he served three months. Once released, he contacted his wife Ethel and tried to reconcile and asked her to come live with him in London, and for whatever reason, she agreed. John did decide to stop doing petty crimes, but he did not stop going to prostitutes to help satisfy his violent and sexual needs. In 1938, he and Ethel moved into a ground floor apartment at 10 Rillington Place, the infamous 10 Rillington Place. It was a less than ideal part of London. The building itself was a three-story house and the Christie's were the only ones in the building who had a living room. There was one outdoor toilet. None of the apartments had bathrooms, and, to top it off, the train ran right past the building, the sound near deafening as it whizzed by. At the beginning of World War II, John applied for and was hired, as they did not know about his criminal background, as a war reserve police officer. While working there, he met a woman named Gladys Jones. John and Gladys began an affair that lasted for a while, but her husband, returning from war, discovered that his wife had been sleeping with John, went to John's apartment, and attacked him. He beat his ass. This would be the catalyst for his first murder. In 1943, not long after he had been physically beaten by Gladys's husband, he met a 21-year-old prostitute named Ruth. He invited her to his home, and while his wife was away, they had sex. Just after, he grabbed some rope and strangled her while she was still in bed. He then put her body under the living room floor for a bit, before deciding to bury her out in the yard. Not long after, John quit his job as a constable and started working as a clerk in a radio factory, and that's where he met Muriel Amelia Edie, whom he worked with. She wasn't feeling good one day, so he invited her back to his apartment to give her some medicine that he had made himself that would just miraculously cure her from her bronchitis. She was instructed to sit and inhale a gas from a tube, except 
The gas contained carbon monoxide and she passed out. He then raped her limp body, strangled her, and buried her next to the grave he had dug for his first victim. In 1948, married couple Timothy and Beryl Evans moved into the top floor apartment at Rillington Place and, a few months later, they had their baby girl, Geraldine. In late 1949, Timothy reported that his wife was dead. The police searched the property and found his wife and daughter in an outdoor wash house. Beryl had been wrapped up in both a tablecloth and then again in a blanket and there were and there was clear bruising on her face as well as it, her being obviously strangled baby Geraldine had also been strangled and there was also after examination a nearly 4 month old fetus there as well Timothy told the police that John had told him that he had some knowledge of abortion which was illegal in the UK at that time and offered to assist the couple. So during the investigation, the police missed so many other clues, mostly John's other victims that had been buried in the yard that was only 16 by 14 feet. There was a human femur propping up a small section of a fence. After the police left, John's dog dug up Muriel's skull. You see, had they done a decently thorough investigation, they would have found other human remains and thus discovered John's graveyard. But Timothy was the prime suspect in the murders and he was arrested. John was questioned and he later testified at trial that the couple fought constantly. Even though John had a bit of a criminal past, the jury believed John's testimony and found Timothy guilty of murder. He was later hung. John, for whatever reason, possibly due to the close call from Timothy's trial, didn't commit any murders for nearly three years. However, his hypochondria grew steadily worse, and he became depressed and lost a considerable amount of weight. John also lost his job at the post office savings bank because his criminal background was exposed during the trial, which he had not disclosed to his employer. So, he got a job as a clerk for the British Road Services. And now that there was a vacancy in the apartments... New tenants, who were predominantly black immigrants from the West Indies, moved in. John and his wife were very upset to be living by them. They believed the people to be inferior in all ways. Verbal altercations began, and finally Ethel Christie went to the police and complained, and one of them was persecuted for assault. John wanted to win the case because he didn't want anyone uncovering the human remains buried in the yard that they shared with the new tenants. Then, on December 14, 1952, John strangled Ethel and killed her. I wish I could give you his reason why, but there just wasn't one, or at least any that he gave. Perhaps she knew too much. 
since we know he told her what to say at Timothy's trial. Maybe she too made fun of his impotency. What we do know is that he placed her body under the floorboards of their apartment. And, as all decaying bodies do, the smell became unbearable quickly. John tried using strong disinfectants to mask the smell. The couple's local friends were told that she had left and moved back with her family. John then turned and told Ethel's family that she was ill, but continued to send packages from, quote, both of them. He also sold all of her jewelry and forged her signature on checks and emptied her bank account because at this point he was unemployed. A month later, on January 19, 1953, John offered to give 25-year-old Rita Nelson, a six-month pregnant prostitute, the abortion that she wanted. Instead, he strangled her and violated her corpse, then placed her body in a space behind a cupboard in his kitchen. The next month, he did the same to another prostitute, gassing her first, then putting her body with Rita's. His last victim was 26-year-old Hectorina McLennan. He let carbon monoxide leak into his kitchen, rendering her unconscious. Once the air in the room had cleared a bit, he raped her while strangling her, continuing to do so over and over while she was dying. Once she passed, he placed her body with the other two behind the cupboard. Then, John wallpapered over the little alcove. On March 20, 1953, John decided to move out of his apartment at 10 Rillington Place. The landlord told the tenant living upstairs that he could use John's former kitchen. The tenant decided to do some renovation to it, and when he peeled back some of the wallpaper, he discovered the space and the bodies. He alerted the police, and the search for John began. Considering there had been murders on that property already, a thorough search was initiated, which revealed the three kitchen-covered corpses, but also Ethel's body under the floorboards and two more bodies in the yard. Also during their search, they found something quite odd. It seems John's choice of trophy, that nearly all serial killers keep, was pubic hair? Professor Keith Simpson, one of the pathologists that examined John's victims, stated, quote, It seems odd that Christie should have said hair from the bodies in the alcove if, in fact, it had come from those now reduced to skeletons. Not very likely that, in his last four murders, the only trophy he took was from the one woman with whom he didn't have perimortal sexual intercourse, and even more odd that one of his trophies had definitely not come from any of the unfortunate women known to have been involved." Unquote. So basically what this means is that the experts believe he killed more victims than what they discovered at the apartment, that he had more pubic hair, pardon me, uh, than bodies that they found. 
10 days after they began the search for John, on March 31st, 1953, he was finally arrested. He eventually admitted to murdering the girls in the wall, his own wife, the victims that were buried in the yard, as well as the mother, the daughter, and the fetus he attempted to abort. And actually, he was quite hesitant to admit that he killed the daughter because he knew what that would mean once he went to jail. Other inmates have zero tolerance for child abusers and child killers. John Christie pled not guilty by reason of insanity, but no one bought that. The fact that he took the time to hide his victims' bodies showed that he knew what he was doing was wrong. His trial lasted only four days, and he was found guilty. I mean, the jury came back with the verdict after only an hour and 20 minutes. He was to be hung in two weeks. John stated that he would not appeal his death sentence, and in his last days, he refused to speak with any doctors anymore, as they were trying to understand why he had done these things. As John spoke to the executioner on his execution day, he said, quote, my nose itches, to which the executioner replied, it won't bother you for long, and he was hung on July 15, 1953. So, guys, why did John Christie become a serial killer? Most psychologists theorize that he formed a hatred for women after being teased about his impotency during his teen years. It has also been said that his own wife teased him about his sexual dysfunction. But this condition isn't uncommon, and men don't go around murdering multiple people because of it. His father was harsh, sure, and strict, and emotionally distant to his children, but I just don't think that that was to the point where it would cause psychological disorder. I saw nothing about his family history that would indicate mental illness. I mean, I'm just not seeing anything that is so intense that would cause him to be a serial killer. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes a lot of time and a lot of work to gather this information, but I do love doing it for you guys. And thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you as I know that you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.